Good morning, church. My name is Ellie. I'll be doing our scripture reading for you this morning. Today, it can be found in Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself before, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word for us today. Amen. Let's get started this morning in prayer, just asking God for his help as we look to his word. Father, we want to quiet our hearts together now to slow down the pace of our inner life to, we pray, get a glimpse into the inner life of your son, Jesus Christ that we might see how it differs quite radically from our inner life and how we have all benefited eternally even as a result. God, we, we, we come to you now anticipating the work you will do through this pivotal passage, uh, a, a text that Christians have looked to and been shaped by for many, many centuries and one that speaks very powerfully um, to, to one of our greatest needs in the Christian life. So with that in mind, we come to you with humble hearts, asking that you would be with us, that you would shape us. In Jesus' name, amen. I am convinced that the church is at a pivotal crossroads at this particular moment in history. As expressive individualism continues to rise, Attitudes toward organized religion continue to plummet. We are losing influence in the culture. Many are suspicious of churches like ours. Uh, our denominations, our institutions are often in decline. Tons of former evangelicals are all now deconstructing. For a long list of reasons, it seems the rules of war are now changed, and the conflict seems to not be going very well. Con countless Christians, that is, are doubting and debating what the appropriate response to all of this is, and I cannot think of a better passage to guide us through all of it than Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Last week, Paul framed this upward life that he and the Philippians share in terms of a battle. 
We've been talking about a a cosmic war between good and evil, and his whole point was that the way God demonstrates his victory over our opponents in this battle is through our pressing on together in unity as these covenant communities, these local churches, even if we have to suffer for the sake of Christ in the process. This, he said, was a sure sign to our opponents of their destruction and of our salvation and of that from God. Then here in chapter 2, he begins by saying, so, in other words, having said all of that about God using our earthly suffering to advance his heavenly purposes, and then here he, he makes another appeal. So, he says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. This is kind of an interesting way to phrase it, right? It, it, because it almost reads as if Paul isn't sure that there are any of these good things. <laughs> uh, but I don't think that's what he's saying. Instead, he seems to be emphasizing that, listen, not every aspect of the Christian life will be positive or pleasant. We can be sure, in fact, it won't be. But that doesn't mean we should just scrap the whole project as if there's something broken in the Christian life. He's basically saying, guys, listen, I realize there are all kinds of hard things we can focus on, plenty of those. And I get it even. They are really hard. But even if there is anything truly heavenly, truly glorious about this upward life we share, even if there's some small piece of it that is real and good and glorious, then here's what he says. Please do this. He says, complete my joy. How? By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul here wants this church to see past the hardships of their earthly suffering and cling to anything that's good, anything that's redeemable, that they could then use to fuel and to sustain their unity. Then for the rest of this passage, he basically explained what it's going to take to win this war, to win this conflict. And I have to tell you, the war tactic that he is recommending here is pretty shocking. So this is the question we want to consider. What will it take for us to press on together as a church toward victory in this upward life? In other words, how do we win this cosmic war we're engaged in, especially when you just kind of look around and it seems like really like we're losing? Maybe you've wondered this yourself. Maybe you've even read one of the countless articles that seem to suggest a solution or way forward, right? What the church needs to do to stay relevant today. Why young people are leaving the church and what we should do to bring them back, right? The idea is there's this crisis. Something is broken. We are being rejected here. The world does not love or esteem us. What do we do? Here's Paul's answer to that question from prison himself. Now, this passage is a bit unique. It is loaded with theological significance. It has been widely debated for much of church history. But more than all that, it revolves around one very specific key concept, which we see in verses 5 to 11. 
And there is quite a bit of debate, even among scholars today, about quite a few details in this text. For instance, what does it mean that Jesus was in the form of God? Is he actually God or or not? Uh, What does it mean that he emptied himself? Did he give up his divinity or, or what? And then on top of all that, there are some unique qualities to verses 5 and 11 through 11 in particular. Especially in the original Greek, these seem to be a bit more poetic than the rest of the letter, or the book. Almost as if they're lyrics from a hymn or some sort of well-known poem. Uh, many have wondered if Paul pulled these words from a popular song or prayer of his day. The truth is, I don't really know. I don't really know. I don't think these scholars do either, to be honest. And I don't think it changes all that much. But this much is clear, especially with this passage, there are plenty of ways to get lost in the weeds unless we latch on to this key concept that is at the center of Paul's argument, not only in this passage, but in the entirety of the book of Philippians. This is so important, I'm just going to give it to you, okay? Right away, and then I'll show it to you in our passage. So here it is. The idea is this, that Jesus was lifted up as king because he was humble enough to be made low. Do you see the up-down dynamic there? He was exalted. He was lifted up because he was humble enough to come down. If we don't understand that concept, we are going to waste a lot of time and energy this morning. But now, let me show you this argument from Paul here in our passage. We will start in verse 5. After calling the Philippians to humility, to not do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, in verses 3 to 4, he says next in verse 5, have this mind, that mind, that humble mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, and then he spends the rest of the passage explaining how King Jesus fought this cosmic battle between good and evil. And his whole point is, listen, there's something about his plan of attack that we need to take careful note of. In particular, uh, he didn't come down from heaven expecting to be exalted as a victorious heavenly king. In fact, Paul writes, though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, those who would want to disprove the divinity of Jesus, for instance, have pointed to this passage and suggested maybe it is evidence that Jesus is at least not fully divine, as if he was simply in the form of God. In other words, he wasn't really God, and he didn't even apparently try to be God. He didn't grasp for that kind of equality. Or maybe some have suggested he was, but then he emptied himself of that divinity when he became human. Uh, We know this is not the case. Uh, Jesus did not empty himself of his divine nature because this same Paul who wrote Philippians says very clearly in Colossians 2 verse 9, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In his incarnate body that he took up here in Philippians 2. In Acts 20, Paul also explains that it was God himself who purchased the church with his own blood. So Paul believes very much that this human person, Jesus Christ, both was and is God. So what is he talking about here? I think the key to making sense of this has to do with that word, the phrase he uses, to grasp. 
Uh, to grasp in this way does not mean to sort of strain or to reach for something that you don't have. It means instead to desperately cling to something or some advantage that you do have. Picture Gollum in Lord of the Rings, right? My precious, right? He's grasping onto that ring. The point is this. Jesus was in the form of God. He was the eternal co-equal son. He was the second member of the Trinity before he ever came down. But rather than clinging to that heavenly advantage, rather than desperately grasping on to his status and never letting go at any cost, Paul says he, he emptied himself, which basically just means he, he poured himself out by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. So he was not emptied of his divine nature, per se, but of his divine status, his divine advantage. Paul's saying, listen, Jesus was doing just fine before he came down here to live with us on the earth. He didn't have to come do that for his own sake. He came down to serve us, and it didn't go particularly well for him either, if you'll remember. He served us at great cost to himself. Look with me at verse 8. Being found in human form, he humbled himself. Church, this is the whole point of this text. Humility. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So it's not only that he just came to live on the earth, above the earth in a human body, he was actually put beneath the earth, dead. We have this heavenly being who was equal with God throughout all of eternity past up there, but rather than clinging to that advantage up there, he humbled himself by coming down here to live as a human on planet earth, to be our servant. He even went so far as to humbly obey his father that he was obedient to the father even to the point of death. This God-man had such little regard for his own interests and advantage, he was willing to do all that the Father told him to do, even if it meant dying, scratch that, even if it meant a brutal death, being executed of all things as a criminal on a cross. This next part is going to be a little... A little awkward. I'm generally up for some stuff like that. But I want us to sing this lyric again, okay? We sang this before. With me right now, ready? <laughs> See the king who made the sun And the moon and shining stars let the soldiers hold and nail him down so that he could save them. Just imagine the humility. The eternal heavenly son of God who had every right to be honored forever as king of all creation, instead crushed, crucified by the very people he made so that he could save 
us. To even the most casual reader, this should sound heinous and wicked and utterly unjust. We might be tempted to think, just imagine how furious the father must have been at all this until that is we read what happened next. As a result of this cosmic humility, this is probably one of the most important words in the entire passage. Therefore, Paul says, therefore. In other words, because of this otherworldly humility like nothing else we've seen before on planet earth. Therefore, because this heavenly son was humble enough to come down and be our servant, to be buried in the ground that he made. Therefore, he says, here's what God did. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Church, he, he brought him back up. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, this heavenly king, every knee should bow. Where? In heaven, up there. On earth, down here. And even under the earth, like way down there. Right? (laughs) What a reversal. What a reversal. This is the upward life we share in, by the way. It is the upward life of a formerly crucified king. But now let's just think about this because Paul was just talking, remember, about a cosmic war we're engaged in. He's been encouraging us to stand firm, remember, and to keep striving side by side in the fight. And so in context, in that context, what would it mean for every knee to bow to this King Jesus in all of creation. What would that tell us, for instance, about this war we're engaged in? I think it would tell us it's over. The war is is over. Paul here is anticipating the day, the glorious day of Christ he mentioned in chapter 1, when this kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. When there will be no more earthly opponents afflicting King Jesus' people and with suffering, because all of those opponents' knees have now bowed, and all of their tongues will have then confessed. In other words, he's saying, listen, someday, guys, all of our earthly opponents are going to say, okay, okay, you guys were right. He is king. And that is what we have to keep in perspective here. We have to remember, Paul is not just telling us all these things about Jesus because they're theologically interesting, although they are. In context, all of this is in service of our life together. Paul is saying, this is God's plan of attack, you guys. This is how we win the war. This is the path to victory. If we want to be found pure and blameless on the day of Christ, if we want to press on together in the upward life and striving together in a manner worthy of the gospel and all the rest, here's the claim, then all of us must be brought low like King Jesus. For all the strategies... And all the assessments out there these days about what's going on in the church and the world, how to fix it. Could it be that the church's spectacular fall from power is really not a problem at all? Could it be that enjoying a place of status and power in this world is is more of an exception, really, uh, than a rule in the kingdom of God? Could it be that by losing this advantage, we may be gaining something 
far more precious, namely this kind of self-giving humility of our formerly crucified and now exalted king. Church, this may be exactly what we need to win the cosmic war we're engaged in. And so with that in mind, I want to consider by way of application this morning how to fight like our crucified king. Here's how we do it. There's three strategies I see here in this text I want to put our attention on. The first one is this. We fight with humble minds being brought low in our thought lives. Humble minds. I want you to notice for Paul, this whole upward life we share in has much to do with how we think. Uh, If we want to be of one mind, for instance, and live together in full accord, this means we're going to have to sort of oust our individual minds off the throne of our lives. And we're going to have to cling to this new kind of mind, which Paul says is ours in Christ Jesus. So with that in mind, I want you to just take a mental inventory of all the conversations you've had lately in the life of our church. Either about a particular member of the church, a leader of the church, a new development maybe in the church, whatever it may be. Consider how many of these have been, using Paul's words, encouraging, comforting, loving, spiritual, affectionate, sympathetic. And then, of course, how many have been marked by maybe an opposite set of words. Imagine for some of us this may seem pretty convicting. Now, just to drive the wedge a little further here, just consider your thoughts. <laughs> Not even the things you've, you've said, but also just the things that run through your mind. <laughs> are our thought lives marked by humble care and concern for one another's interests or by a proud defense of our interests at all costs? To me, it seems the opposite of this humble mind that Paul is commending here is a cynical mind. A cynical mind. Uh, The cynical mind says, if there is any discouragement, if there is any discomfort that comes from turmoil, any participation in death, or any smug sense of superiority, focus on all that stuff, right? And let it drive a wedge between you and everyone else in your life, particularly your local church. A cynical mind elevates us. You see this high above the rest, everything and everyone. It puts us in this exalted place, lifted up, from which we can look down on everyone else and just pick it all apart. (laughs) You think this church is actually good? You think that member is actually wise? Let me tell you, they are not. And there are some other people who agree with me. Proud, cynical minds make any attempts to live together in full accord totally futile. And while we may encounter this kind of cynicism all around us in the world, One of the applications, I think, of this passage is very simple. It's that local churches like ours should be some of the least cynical communities on planet Earth. Church, in Christ Jesus, we have access to this whole new kind of humble, self-giving mind. 
It's as if Christ himself has opened up his brain so that us, to us, so that we can almost use it. <laughs> we can participate in his spirit. We, we can have his mind among us. It's ours in him. And if we do, I think it will look a lot like us trying to find even the faintest evidence of Christ at work in the life of our church. The faintest evidence. Desperately searching for anything good, anything heavenly, and then clinging to those things in our minds and hearts and letting them dominate our thoughts. As if, hey, look, this may be hard at times. We should probably expect that based on what we see in the scriptures. We may have to suffer, and this may feel like striving, but he is at work among us. He is. I can tell he's at work, right? Because of my small group, or because of this one friendship that I have, or, or because of this service this morning, whatever it may be, humble minds look for any evidence of God at work, and they cling to the hope of that evidence. Even when obeying him means losing people's respect, they cling to his hope and they obey to the point of death. Even when obeying him means letting go of their own interests, they don't act in vain conceit or selfish ambition. They look to the interests of others and they, because they cling to the hope of this work of God in it all. Proud minds, on the other hand, look for any evidence of a threat and they do whatever it takes to avoid being brought low. Now, none of this means we need to turn off our brains and never voice any concerns. I do want to clarify this, okay? Uh, it's not automatically unwise, for example, to take issue with something in the life of the church. Uh, but if we are tapping into this humble mind of Christ, it should certainly change the way we address our concerns. In particular, we should do so trusting that Christ is not only at work in our minds, but also in the mind of that brother and sister we may have a concern with, right? A, a humble mind does not just assume the worst about everyone else's intentions and the best about its own. A humble mind knows that it has blind spots and therefore assumes it could be wrong or in need of shepherding. A humble mind can voice a concern without tearing others down or creating strife because a humble mind is more concerned with exalting Christ than protecting its own interests and advantage. And all of this applies just as much, if not more so, for leaders as well, by the way. Uh, we need to be made low in our own thought lives as well. Uh, we should be accessible. We should be open. Not always suspicious that members are out to get us for some reason. Uh, giving the benefit of the doubt to those who are maybe in a difficult place or feeling complacent or sort of having doubts. Having a humble mind does not mean we have to pretend that everything is always fine, but it should lead to unique kind of love that changes the way we relate to one another, which is our next war tactic. We fight with humble love being brought low in our relationships. See, at the heart of sin, if you just sort of peel back the many complicated layers of it, is this desire we have to promote and to protect ourselves. 
This is the kind of life that a proud, sinful mind leads to because we just can't imagine anything being good or holy unless it helps or serves us. And of course, this has a toxic, devastating effect on all of our relationships. It's the reason the world in so many ways is broken. This is completely counterintuitive, this kind of humble love, because we're kind of almost conditioned in every single turn in, in our world to believe the opposite. Uh, but the way up in this way, the way towards a heavenly upward life with those you love is actually down. The way up is down. The way to have great exalted relationships is to humble ourselves and to prioritize others. Just think of every conflict you've ever had. In one way or another, could it not almost certainly be boiled down to this question, is that other person respecting and protecting my interests or not? Do they want this to go well for me? Right? James puts it this way in James chapter 4. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. It's interesting. Jesus had nothing left to desire. He had it all. And yet he didn't murder. He was murdered. <laughs> Did you see how this works? Step one, we want something. Step two, we don't have that thing. Step three, we wonder if this person is going to help or hurt our chances of getting that thing. Step four, we're, it's on. We're at war. We're in conflict. This just ruins our relationships. And it all starts, it can all be traced back to this desire we have to look out for our interests. Are they going to help lift me up here or not? Because I want to be exalted. Right? We, we tend to think that pride is the way up insisting on our advantage, demanding others' respect. One scholar puts it this way, reflecting on our passage today. He says, in the divine order of things, self-humbling leads inevitably to exaltation. This is just kind of a, a, an interesting thought that I've had, but I, I, I think what I see this on display, certainly in the cross, that's Paul's point, but you even also see it on display in the golden rule. One of the simple commandments of the kingdom, Right? to treat others the way you want to be treated. It's almost as if Jesus, knowing our sin nature, sort of reverse engineered that sin nature to actually produce good. You want life to go well for you, right? You want your own interest and advantage, right? You understand that. Well, so here's what we do. Just assume everyone else does, and then here's the shift, right? Treat them that way. You see that? It's just such an interesting thing. It is so foundational to life in the kingdom, this upside-down logic. This is all counterintuitive for us, especially today, because we live in a world that has elevated the self high above everything else. We live in a world where the term self-esteem is universally understood to be a good thing that all of us need in large sums in order to be healthy. Of all things, right? We should esteem ourselves. We, we should be so enamored with our self that we are just amazed at the thought of us. This is what it means to esteem. It means to hold in the highest regard. 
And by the way, the people who really love you, right, they're the ones who agree. They're, they're the ones who esteem you. They're the ones who will fight tooth and nail to protect your God-given American right to keep esteeming yourself. Is it any wonder we can't make this antiquated idea of marriage seem to work anymore? Is it any wonder we're more isolated, more hopeless, more anxious seemingly than ever before? Is it any wonder so many churches are riddled with conflict and gossip and power dynamics, right? Could it be that we're trying to live this upward life of Christ without being made low like Christ? Could it be that more than any other remedy that promises to lift us up, church, what all of us really need is this self-giving humility to be made low, like our king who was crucified for us? Friends, what kind of opponents would you give anything to maintain an advantage over? Who is it that you would go to great lengths to push down or run from, maybe even hurt in some way, so that they don't pull you down? And what would it look like instead to fight those battles with the kind of humble love we see modeled at the cross of Christ? This one who, who let God raise him up rather than doing it himself. These are the kinds of relationships we need to fight with. And, and finally, number three, we need to fight with humble obedience, trusting the God who brings us low, trusting him. Ultimately, I don't think any of this comes down to simply whether or not we want to be humble. I think all of it actually more appropriately comes down to whether or not we will obey God. Because he has spoken here at church. He is accomplishing his redemptive work through the suffering of his son. He has granted us to share in his sufferings. And this is his plan to win the cosmic war and conquer sin and death. So if we obey him, if we humble ourselves as Paul is encouraging us to here, and we keep striving side by side, even through suffering, this is the path to victory. Obedience. And we may be crucified like Jesus even someday. Um, this obedience can sometimes even lead to death here on earth, but we will share in his upward life. On the other hand, if we disregard this call to, be, to suffer and to be rejected, and we try to exalt ourselves or hold on to our advantage, then we will have no interest in pressing on together in the upward life. Of course we wouldn't. Why would we, right? It's very simple. Suffering is bad. I would like my earthly life to go well. So I'm out of here. I don't care what God says or wants. <laughs> if that's it, then I don't want it. But in the end, if we lack this humble, faith-filled obedience, we will also be excluded from the upward life of Christ. Uh, we, we will not be found pure or blameless on the day of Christ, all because we failed to trust that when Christ calls us to share in his sufferings, he has our best interests in mind. He's not just trying to be a downer. He's beckoning us up with him to a new kind of heavenly life. Friends, some of you are just not sure if you want to keep striving with us. Almost just statistically, that's probably the case in the life of a church. 
Uh, maybe you've done this whole church membership thing for a few years. You're kind of losing interest, maybe starting to consider other options. You would like a church experience that's a bit lower maintenance, maybe. You kind of go back and forth in your mind between checking out and just staying at a distance or just leaving altogether. Uh, the further you drift from our fellowship spiritually, the more doubts you start to have. Do I really believe all this? Uh, do I really need a church that knows me and expects me to obey God with them? Wouldn't, wouldn't my life just be smoother and more aerodynamic if I just kind of slowly backed away? I could have more time to myself or with family on Sunday mornings. I wouldn't have to risk my unbelieving friends asking out or finding I'm a member of this church and asking me all kinds of uncomfortable questions about what I believe. This gospel-centered family thing is hard. And it can, it can be exhausting at times. If I could just sort of break free from it, it seems. It just, it, just, it just feels like my life would float upward. If this is where you are today, please hear this plea from your pastor. Directly from God's word in Philippians. If there is anything good or God-honoring about your membership in this church, anything at all, any comfort from love you've experienced from some of the people in this room, any affection, any sympathy, stuff like that, please complete my joy as your pastor by pressing on with us in full accord. We can continue with this one same mind, church, because it is ours in him. He's given it to us. But it will require us to be made low together like he was made low. So will we trust that God is in us with this, even if it means being made low? And will we obey? Uh, some of us may need to hear this, though, from a different perspective. Maybe you need to hear this from a more sort of cultural or worldview perspective. It seems like one of the things that God may be doing right now is bringing Christians low. It's no longer an advantage to be a committed Christian. In many cases, it may be a disadvantage. It may be a liability. We are not certainly gaining influence in the world, and many are tempted to respond to this in all kinds of ways, some by abandoning the historic truth claims of the faith and repackaging it in a more palatable way. Others by grasping on to any form of cultural or political power they can find. But as Christianity loses influence in the world, what if obedience to God actually looks more like embracing obscurity? Embracing it. Taking it. Just expecting to be misunderstood and disrespected and then pressing on together in the upward life all the same, maybe as this is almost part of the plan. Oh, you're one of these Bible-believing Christians who thinks that God is angry about sin. You think we all need to repent of our naughty deeds so he doesn't send us to hell. Well, what if rather than saying, no, 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 I'm not one of those Christians. My goodness, I don't believe any of that. I don't believe anything unless you believe it too, right? Um, or maybe the opposite extreme. Yeah, I do believe that. Like every other Christian throughout history, you fool, Right? the opposite extreme. Well, what if instead we simply said, yes. Yes. It seems like your questions may be a bit loaded. Yes. But 
But I do basically believe that. And if you, if you ever want to know or understand more about why, I'd be happy to sit down and talk with you. Yes. Now, is that terrifying? Mm-hmm. Uh, does it mean we may be misunderstood or dismissed, maybe even hated by some? Yeah, it probably does. But what if that is precisely God's plan? What if this is just how he does it, you guys? It is how it worked for his son, after all. But as excruciating as, as it was for him, look at him now. Usually when a king is executed, that means his reign is over. It's the point at which people typically stop following and fighting for him. This is not the case with King Jesus or this peculiar heavenly kingdom of his. His death was not the end of his reign. It was the beginning. And to fight for him in this cosmic war against evil looks a lot like taking up a cross ourselves and being made low. This is the way of King Jesus, church. This is the manner of life that is worthy of his gospel, not making much of ourselves, but being made low, like our humble, crucified king. Amen. 